Turn to John chapter 19, verse 28 and 29. John chapter 19. Before we dive into the scripture today, though, I, I want to tell you uh, that Pastor Lindsay and I had a, an amazing trip uh, to Jerusalem and Israel. Uh, it was absolutely life-changing. Bill, can you hold this for me right here? It was absolutely uh, life-changing in every way. It was worth every moment, every penny, every sacrifice that we made to go there. Thank you for uh, encouraging us to go and celebrating with us. And uh, did Pastor Damon preach a great message last week? Um, Man, he's just uh, one of my best friends in the whole world. Hated that I didn't get to see him, but I know that he was glad to be here. He said that you all looked great. He loved being with you and uh, can't, can't wait to be back with you. But man, we just had an, crazy, an, an incredible time in Israel. And I'm not going to take the whole sermon today. The truth is I could talk all day about what we learned, what we saw, how it impacted us. I'm not going to do that. I'll just kind of take a couple of minutes here. But over the course of the next few weeks, I'll try to tell you a little bit week to week. Uh, of what, am I ringing a little bit? I feel like I'm really loud or something. I am? Okay. Uh, um, so I'll tell you a little bit, because it's just, for one thing, I'm still processing. It is, it is hard for me to tell you all what happened, because I'm not even sure what all happened. But there is something about being in the place where Jesus lived, where Jesus was, where all of this history that happened. You know, this, this book is the story, it's a love story between God and his people, but it's also, also the most accurate historical document that was ever written. And time and time again, uh, archaeologists are proving that what the Bible said is true. And so when you're walking through these places, through these cities, uh, down these streets, uh, when you're walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, and you're, you're learning about what I have literally spent most of my life studying, it comes alive in ways that it's, that's hard to even put into words. We saw so many great sights. We stood in a tabernacle in Magdalene, where Mary of Magdalene was from. We stood in this tabernacle and in the remains of it. And you can see the mosaic tiles on the ground that were there from the days of Jesus. And we know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus stood in this synagogue and he taught and he preached to the people of the surrounding cities. We know that. We, we, we stood there, we saw it, we watched, we saw the, the stone that he would roll the scrolls out. And when he would read things like when he read Isaiah 61.1 where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. We're seeing the places, you see the pots where the scrolls were held in. Unbelievable. One of the coolest moments and, and one of the things about it is how small everything is. Um, you know, America's a really big nation. And you just think when you're reading the Bible, it's this huge area, this huge expanse. But the fact is, it's a very small area. Uh, the, the entire nation of Israel is no larger than the state of Massachusetts. Uh, so it's just very, very small. In fact, we, we went out onto the Sea of Galilee. And we're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake. And we're on this boat. And he says, okay, I want you to hold your hand like this. And I want you to point at that little village that's right over here. And, and he named the village. It was a place that we had just been a, about an hour before that. He said, now I want you to come over here and I want you to point at that little crack in this valley in this, uh, that comes down to the shore. And he said, now I want you to understand that that's about six miles or so. 
you're looking at two-thirds of what happened in the Gospels happened right there in this six-mile stretch. Put it all into perspective. Uh, you're, you're looking at um, the hill where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. The, the Mount of Beatitudes is right here in front of you. You turn around right behind you in the, in the story where Jesus cast the demons out of the demoniac and, 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 threw the, and put the demons into pigs, and the pigs jumped off the hill and, and killed themselves. I don't know if you remember that story. It's right here behind us. And it's just, it, it all comes into perspective. One of the, one of the coolest moments, are y'all okay? Because I'll stop and preach if you want me to. We had a chance. We, we joined um, for one night. You may have seen some of my videos. Um, we joined with one, for one night in Caesarea, um, which was a, a Roman city, actually, in Jerusalem, built by Herod the Great. And it's right on the Mediterranean Sea. It's a port. Uh, it's where Paul was in prison before they shipped him to Rome to stand trial. When he was going to stand trial before Caesar, he was put in prison right here in Caesarea. And so we joined, uh, TBN had a big group there, um, uh, Pastor Joel Osteen with Lakewood had a big group there, and Pastor Joseph Prince uh, from Singapore had a huge group there. So we're gathered in this Roman Colosseum built several thousand years ago that overlooks the Mediterranean Sea. And we had a service with like 3,000 believers gathered from literally all over the world. And uh, Pastor Joseph Prince was there, Pastor Joel Osteen, Bethel Worship was there, uh, Pastor David Nicole Binion leading worship. It was an incredible night. We actually sang one of the, one of the coolest moments. I don't even know why, but we, the song we led out with today, The Lion and the Lamb, you know that song? When we got to the, the line that says, my God is a lion and my God is the lamb, I felt the presence of God so strong. It was just unbelievable as you're sitting in this place. And right behind me is what was uh, another uh, place where they would race chariots. But when they, they built a bigger place because they needed more room, they enclosed it in and made a gladiator coliseum where the gladiators would fight to the death. But then even more than that, they made it a place where when the Christians were persecuted, they would bring them into there and they would stake them to the ground and the wild animals would be released to kill them while people were standing around them, cheering them. And now here we are, a hundred yards away, singing our God is a lion, the lion of Judah, our God is a lamb. And, and I don't know, something about it just, just overwhelmed me. It was incredible. We went all the way to Jerusalem. We saw what we believe was the, the tomb that Jesus was in. And uh, we took communion outside that tomb. And uh, it was one of the most powerful moments I've ever felt in the presence of God. Uh, one, of, one of my pastors turns to me, and there's a hundred of our people, and he turns to me at the last second and goes, Randon, I want you to do the bread. I'm like, I can't hardly even stand up right now, and you want me to do the bread. And so by the time I got, I talked for a minute about the body of Christ and the, and the bread, of the, uh, his body that was broken and before, by the time I got to the point where I said, okay, and today we break the bread and we bless the bread, my hands were shaking, not from nerves, but just feeling the presence of God so strong, being overcome with emotions uh, that I could hardly even speak or hold the bread to get it in my mouth. It was incredible. It was incredible. I can't wait to tell you more. Um, uh, God really opened up some revelation to me. I can tell you this, that um, we had already planned a series for... Uh, right after Easter, and uh, I'll just give you a quick teaser. Um, 
I, I, God gave me a revelation as to why, God, why the enemy attacks your body, specifically your body with things like sickness and disease or things like the sins of the flesh, um, the, the lust of the eyes, uh, convincing you to sin against your own body. God gave me a, a, a revelation of why. And it's directly connected to your relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I can't wait to share that with you. That's coming after Easter. So good things. Uh, amazing trip. We're going again in a couple of years. It, it won't be next year. I'd like to stand here and say, I'm going next year and you're all coming with me. I can't afford it. Um, but I will tell you that if you've never been to Israel, you need to go to Israel. Uh, you need to see what God is doing. I'm so encouraged by the Jewish people. Not just the Messianic Jews that believe in Christ, but the, the heart and the passion uh, of, of many of the Jewish people believing in their God and what they have fought, gone through to see God's will done in their nation. It's unbelievable. It's an encouraging story. Uh, it's an incredible story. And I want to share with you more about it. But for now, let's open to John. What chapter did I say? 19? 19 verse 28. Who said, did, did you feel safe? Did you, feel, um, did you ever feel like you were in danger? I never felt like I was in danger, but we did feel, feel one time things got very real. Um, I'm going to tell you one quick story. Uh, is, that, is that okay? All right. We go up, we're going up to uh, uh, Mount um, where Elijah uh, faced off against uh, the, the prophets of Baal and called down fire out of heaven. I don't know why it starts with a G. I don't know why my mind is going blank right now. No, not Mount Gilead. I don't know. Mount Carmel. It doesn't start with a G. It starts with a C. Similar uh, shape there, though. Mount Carmel. I'm so sorry. So Mount Carmel is like the, like the highest place in all of Israel. So you're standing here, and you, 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 know, you've got a, you can see the entire land of Israel. It's amazing. You see for just miles and miles and miles. You can see the Mount of Transfiguration. You, you can see everything. You see the Mediterranean Sea. But as we're climbing up, we suddenly hear this roaring noise. It's loud. And I said, man, that sounds like fighter jets. Sure enough, four Israeli fighter jets fly right over us. Well, you're already 10,000 feet up and they're flying low. So it felt like they were, you know, reach up and grab them. I mean, it was, it was just shaking you. It was so loud. And so they fly over us behind us. So we get on top of this church built on the top of Mount Carmel. And we're kind of listening to the guide and we're talking. We're having a little service up there. And suddenly you hear this kaboom. It just, what just happened? And then you hear boom, 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 boom. And our guy's like, oh, that's a car accident. And then all of a sudden, we're, a couple of minutes later, you hear another massive explosion. Just kaboom. I mean, you can feel it in your chest. Like, huge explosion. He's like, yeah, that was a car accident. The other guy comes up and goes, oh, they're just doing testing out over the Mediterranean Sea. Now, we found out that they had flown into Syria and bombed some warehouses that they believe were holding massive uh, weapon stashes. And they had bombed them. And then next thing you know, we see the jets coming right back over the top of us. It got real very quickly. I'm not even going to lie to you. But I never felt endangered. It wasn't like, uh, you know, there were some people in our group that were immediately, we're off the roof and we're in the shelter. But I'm like looking. I'm like, I'm looking for an explosion. I don't know why. I'm just dumb like that, I guess. <laughs> 
John 19, verse 28, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said these words, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. He keeps going. Verse 29. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. We've been studying for the last few weeks the last things that Jesus said on the cross. When he would lift himself up and go through the excruciating pain to lift himself up in order to make a statement. Because he couldn't just talk. He had to lift himself up just to get a breath. And the power contained within the words, the, the, the deep theology contained within the words, has these life-changing meanings. Why? Because Jesus was wasting no words. Even when Jesus was on trial, he was wasting no words. We went to the place uh, in Caiaphas' house, who was the high priest of the day, and, and we went in, into the basement of his house. They had basically a dungeon or a prison, and we saw the place where they threw Jesus in. They actually uh, had to tie ropes around him and drop him down into this deep hole and then covered it up with a stone so he couldn't get out. He had one little hole where he could barely breathe through. And it was on this courtyard just outside where, where Peter denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. Jesus wasn't wasting words when he was on trial. He wasn't trying to defend himself. He wasn't arguing with people. He had said all of his words. So when Jesus opens his mouth and he says words, you know that they were important because of the cost he went through in order to make the statement or say the words. But, but these words, they, why did you say them, Jesus? Because we look up at verse 28 and we read where of all the things Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Into your hands I commit my spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 28, suddenly Jesus reaches up and through the darkness, remember a darkness had covered the earth, and through the darkness you hear Jesus say, I am thirsty. At first glance, it doesn't feel like these words carry the weight of the other statements. It feels like the man's just asking for something to drink. But on further notice, if we keep looking at it because we recognize that Jesus wasn't playing around and if he said something, it had a meaning to it. What was Jesus saying to us 2,000 years later? Father, I thank you for your presence today. I thank you that we get to come together and worship you. I, I believe that your son Jesus wants to speak to our hearts today. I, I thank you that he died for us and rose again, that we could stand here today and worship you, that we could have life and have it more abundantly. So Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts today. Open our minds, open our spirits to hear from you, to be challenged by the power of your word. Encourage us. Lord, I know that you have something special for us today. Do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Four things I want to tell you about this uh, very quickly. Number one is this. Jesus was committed to fulfilling prophecy. I've mentioned this on a couple of occasions, but I want to re re reverberate it. Uh, uh, re re 
Hebrew is something. I want, to, I, want to, I want to say it again today, and I want to put it in a little more perspective. I don't know what word I was thinking of there, but it didn't come to me. Jesus was committed to fulfilling prophecy. What does that mean? There were actually 332 messianic prophecies. 332. Jesus had to fulfill every single one of them. He had to do this for a number of reasons, but he had to do it. And he was 100% committed. So when he said he drank the sour wine or they put it on his lips and he drank it, what was he fulfilling? We find this in Psalm chapter 69, verse 19 to 21. See if this sounds like Jesus hanging on the cross. You know of my shame, my scorn, and my disgrace. You see all that my enemies are doing. Their insults have broken my heart and I am in despair. Do you remember when they were insulting Jesus? If only one person would show some pity, if only one would turn around and comfort me, but instead they give me poison for food and watch this, they offer me sour wine for my thirst. So here is David, a thousand years before Jesus, writing this prophecy uh, about the Messiah coming. And here is Jesus. Does that not sound like Jesus hanging on the cross with the people insulting him and rejecting him and lying about him? And he's hanging there in shame. Why is he hanging there in shame? Not because of his sin, but because of my sin. He's hung there in the shame of my sin and your sin. And yet all he's saying is, I'm thirsty. And what do they give him? Sour wine. Interesting here, though. Because sour wine is a specific word. We'll talk about it more, lately, more later. But, but Jesus had to fulfill Scripture, so he says, he lifts himself up. He says, I am so committed to fulfilling Scripture that I'm going to say, I am thirsty so that they'll give me some sour wine. Because if they had never given him the sour wine, he wouldn't have fulfilled all 332 Messianic prophecies. Messianic prophecies are prophecies about the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. 332 prophecies. Now, I didn't do this math, but I'm going to put a number on the screen for you here in just a second, and it's a bit overwhelming. I don't know how exactly how they arrived at it, but basically they did 332 prophecies by all the people who had lived on the earth, an estimate of all the people who had lived on the earth from the that could fulfill all the promises by the time that Jesus got here. They had to be Jewish. They had to be from this tribe. So all the people, no matter where they were living, from that tribe of Israel that could have been the Messiah to fulfill all 332 possibilities or prophecies. Here are the odds that it, was, it could be done. You talk about the odds of winning the lottery and how astronomical they are. For those that are into March Madness, like I am, anybody have a bracket in March Madness? I do. How many of you lost when Virginia went out? It was a bad day. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's on you, not me. Here are the odds. If you think it's astronomical that you could get struck by lightning or win the lottery or get a perfect bracket, here are the odds that one man could actually fulfill all of the Messianic prophecies. Put that number up on the screen. One in that number. For the record, that's 97 zeros. I don't even, that's not millions or billions or trillions or whatever comes. I don't even know. This, these are the odds that it was Jesus. And yet Jesus says, just to make sure that you know 
I am the Messiah because I don't want to miss a one. I'm going to lift myself up on these nails and say, I thirst so that they'll, they'll give me sour wine and I can fulfill the Messianic prophecy from Psalm 69 and 21. That's the odds. And yet Jesus fulfilled every single one. Why was he so committed? Two reasons. Number one, because if he missed one, he wouldn't have been the Messiah. Why 332? Because God knew of us that our heads will get in the way of the belief in our hearts. So he made it such extreme odds that when, when his son fulfilled them all, Nothing in our brains could talk us out of it being Jesus, but our hearts, he could fill our hearts with his love and how convinced he was that he wanted to die for my sins and yours, that he loves you, he cares about you, and Jesus is the one. Put that number up there for me one time, just look at it. That was the odds, and yet Jesus was the one. He was fully committed to fulfilling prophecy. Number two is this. Uh, actually, um, let, let, me, let me say this as, as well before we move on. Uh, not only was he fulfilling prophecy, uh, but I'm convinced that um, every step Jesus took was ordered of the Lord. He wasn't just randomly walking about, but every step he took was ordered of the Lord. Uh, the devil thought he was in charge, especially at the end there. The devil thought he was winning, but actually the devil was playing right into God's hands. Everything that the high priest did to try to stop Jesus actually became an opportunity for Jesus to fulfill the prophecy. Here's what the Bible says in Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. The devil thought he was in control and directing the steps. The devil was trying to defeat Jesus, but everything he did played right into the hands of God. It fulfilled scripture one more time. He thought, th he thought things were going his way. This tells us something very interesting about the devil, and I want you to know it. As much as the devil tries to convince you that he knows everything about your life and your future, he does not. We know this because if the devil were really trying to stop Jesus, if he knew what was coming, if he knew the future, he would not have positioned Jesus to continually to fulfill Scripture. But everything the devil did, everything the high priest did, every time they threw him in prison, every time, everything that happened all the way through Jesus' life, every, at every turn, the enemy tried to stop him, but the enemy couldn't see far enough into the future to stop it. And Jesus just kept fulfilling Scripture over and over and over again. Why? Because his steps are ordered of the Lord. They are directed of the Lord. And everything the enemy tried to do, God said, you'll never fall, you'll never stumble. God had him by the hand, leading him the whole way. Why? Why does that matter to me and why does that matter to you? Because the devil wants to speak to you and act like he knows what's going on in your life. He knows your future better than you do. He knows your future better than God does. And he can control what's happening in your life. Stop giving the devil so much credit. He doesn't know your future. He doesn't know what God has for you. But what I know is that the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of your life. And don't worry about what the enemy is doing. God will work it out. You just keep following God. Don't listen to the devil any longer. 
What if Jesus had stopped and said, oh, man, the devil's got this worked out. I'm done now. There's nothing I can do. That's not what Jesus said. Every time they did something, can you see Jesus just smirking a little bit? Going, they think they've got me beat. But I'm about to fulfill more scripture. I'm about to fulfill more prophecy. Every time the devil's got you beat, just smile back at him and say, you don't know, but God's about to come through for me. And he's about to show himself strong and mighty in my life. He's about to be my God once again. Don't give the devil any more credit. What did they say of the devil? He's a mouse with a microphone. Don't let him speak to you that way. He thinks he knows. He doesn't know. You keep walking in the steps of God. Number two, Jesus understands what you and I are going through. He understands. He knows what it means to be thirsty. Jesus was not just using superhuman strength to get, th get through this. He was in excruciating pain. He was exhausted. He was facing extreme dehydration. He had been going through 12 hours of extreme torture. I saw the hill that when they arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane at the base of, of the Mount of Olives, and they drug him up the hill to Caiaphas' house. You can see the steps. We weren't allowed to walk on them, but you can hang over and you can touch the steps that are right there. It's up the side of a mountain, and Jesus is climbing this mountain. They're dragging him and beating him all the way up until they throw him in prison. He's going from prison to prison and trial to trial as, as he is being tortured and beaten and abused. And then he's flogged and whipped and beaten with the cat of nine tails. And for 12 hours, since the time he was at the, the Last Supper with his disciples, he never drank a thing. The man was thirsty. I, I, I spent time in, in for, for 11 days in their climate. And I can tell you, uh, we got thirsty very quickly. We got dehydrated very quickly. You had to drink water the entire time. And yet, Jesus had nothing to drink while he was going. And he's bleeding. And he's losing all of these liquids. And yet, he understands where we are. His life can have a way of not just beating you up, but exhausting you and, and stealing uh, the, the life source out of you. We all have needs in our life, difficulties, struggles, things that we face. But here's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. He understands. Talking about Jesus. He understands our weaknesses, for he faced some of all of the same testings we do. If you weren't raised in, in the charismatic movement like I was or, or uh, in, in church like I was, when the preacher reads the wrong word, you got to say no and say the right word. Okay, so I'm going I'm to do it again. For he faced a few of the same testing. Now you're getting, I know you know, Rikita, you're leaving me hanging here, you know. So, so he, our priest understands our weakness for he faced most of all the same testings we do. No, he faced all of the same testings we do, and yet he did not sin. If you're facing complete exhaustion in your life right now, you need to know that Jesus faced it, and he understands. Yet he did not sin. 
He didn't turn away. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Because Jesus went through it and overcame, we come boldly before the throne and we receive grace and mercy. Why? Because our high priest understands. I read a commentary this week and they explained it like this. Uh, If you were if you're broke in your finances and you're trying to get ahead and you're in debt and you're, and you're trying to figure out how to pay your bills and get ahead and earn a savings and, and not continue to go in debt, you wouldn't want to go to a billionaire who had inherited all of his money and never understood lack and never understood a budget, who had just lived and going on vacations all over the world and flying in helicopters and private planes you wouldn't want to go talk to him and have him help you understand how to get out of where you are because he's never been there before right here's jesus in heaven seated at the right hand of the father all the riches of heaven and earth belong to him he has everything he could want and yet jesus left all of that and he made himself the poorest of the poor to the point that he was born in a manger he didn't even have a hotel room he didn't have a hospital he had to be born in a barn when they when after they had him mary laid him in the trough that they fed the animals in why because jesus wanted to make sure no matter who you are if you're the lowest of the low Oh, the best of the best. I've been through what you're going through, and I understand. Don't let the enemy convince you that Jesus doesn't understand. This high priest of ours, Jesus, understands all our weakness, uh, uh, our weakness, uh, our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same. He knows. And here's what he said, in, and Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 through 5. All praise to God, the glory of our Lord Jesus, of our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When we are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given to us. Here's the point. But when we suffer, we understand Jesus suffered, we suffered. He's comforting us so that we can comfort others. We live in a world that is hurting. We live in a world that is suffering. They're in need of hope. They're in need of life. They're they're in need of something more than what they have. They're exhausted, hurting, rejected, abused, abandoned, betrayed, and you have the answer because your high priest went through it all. And as he comforts you, comfort those around you. Number three. Number three is simply this. Jesus knew what to drink. Jesus knew what to drink. I mentioned to you a moment ago that he drank sour wine, and I would tell you what that meant. Uh, it was actually a drink, and here's the, here is the word for it. It's a, it's a, a, um, it's a word in Latin or, or Greek, actually. It's posca, posca. Uh, it was a specific drink. It wasn't just like sour wine. That, that's how we translate it. But it was a specific drink. Uh, it, had, it was wine that had turned into vinegar. It had no alcohol left in it. It had turned into vinegar. And it was a preferred drink by the Roman soldiers throughout the empire. Uh, it fought against uh, uh, scurvy. It killed harmful bacteria in the water. Oftentimes their water didn't smell good or taste good. So they would pour some of this uh, vinegar, this sour wine in it. And they would stir it all around and kind of dilute the bad taste and the bad smell. 
It also had the ability to uh, rehydrate your body much quicker than just drinking water and especially quicker than drinking wine. And so it is believed that it was one of the Roman soldiers who kept this at the cross. It was what he was drinking to stay hydrated. Remember that when they would hang on the cross, they would often hang there for two and three days before they died. And the soldiers had to hang there to guard them the entire time. So they would have a bottle of this posca there, this sour wine. It's this vinegar-tasting, uh, vinegar-like substance that was diluted with water. And that's what they offered Jesus to drink. So he took a sponge. Sponge was uh, something that the Roman soldiers carried as well. They would wipe their sweat with it. They would sometimes use it to drink with as well. They would place it uh, inside their ha- helmets in order to protect their heads some from the metal of the helmets they used it for all types of things they put this on the end of of a hyssop branch they dip it in this posca and they give it to jesus it's interesting though what jesus drank he drank this why do i say that because in mark chapter 15 verse 23 the bible tells us earlier on they offered him wine drugged with myrrh but he refused it Jesus gets, Jesus gets offered wine. He gets offered something that could help him. The myrrh uh, or the gall that they would put in it had a drugging effect to you. Not just that an alcohol which dilutes our senses, but there was something added to it which had a numbing effect on the body. Why would they do this? Oftentimes, Jewish women would bring this drink to the people who were about to be crucified in order to try and lessen their suffering. It was a compassionate move. And yet Jesus didn't drink that wine. He drank the sour wine that couldn't help him take the pain away. But he refused the drink that could have eased his suffering. Why? Because Jesus loved you and I so much that he wouldn't do anything to take away his suffering so that he could do everything to take away your suffering. He loved us so much. He cares for us so much, he wouldn't take anything to drug him. He didn't take the easy way out. He didn't look for a means of escape from his suffering, from his pain. We all thirst. We all face difficult situations. Um, I, I understand. I, I'm not a scientist. I, I, I'm not sure how I passed health or biology in high school. Um, but Dr. Oz says that, that the body is made up of 70% water. And by the time we realize we're thirsty, we're already being dehydrated. By the time we realize there is a need, we're already behind. And that we can often confuse hunger and thirst. Our bodies are thirsty. We think they're hungry, so we eat, which makes the problem worse. So what do we do? We eat more when we're really thirsty. We don't drink. And then when we, what we do drink, the Cokes that we drink, The carbonation that we drink, the caffeine that we drink, all these things, they don't actually do what our body needs. Our body needs hydration, and they don't help us. Reminds me of John chapter 4 when Jesus uh, was passing through Samaria, and he stops at a well. And the woman comes walking up. She's going to dip water. And Jesus says to her, woman, give me a drink. Now, I won't go into the details of the whole story and how weird and awkward this moment was. And yet the woman is like, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for water? You're a man, you're a Jew, you're not even supposed to be talking to me, and yet you're asking me for water. And Jesus says, woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
What's the point? She came thinking that she needed the water in the well. But she ran into Jesus that had living water, that had the water that could satisfy her soul long term. She was looking for the wrong thing. Here's what Jesus says in John 4. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Here's the point. If you're chasing the water of the world, the things of the world... It's temporal, and it will not continue to satisfy you. It's why he says, go and call your husband. She says, I have no husband. He said, you're right, for you've had five, and the one you're living with is not even your husband. Because she had been trying to satisfy her soul with things of the world, going from husband to husband to husband, hoping that some other man could solve her problems and, and cure her thirst. But yet Jesus says, what I have can solve your problems can let you, uh, you'll, you'll drink from a living water that doesn't come from the outside, but it starts bubbling up from the inside. That's what Jesus offered. The source is in you, continually satisfying your thirst. Verse 23, but the time is coming, and indeed it's here now, when true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Wait a minute, Jesus, you're talking about water, now you're talking about worship. Why? Because there's something connected between that bubbling spring on the inside of us, and it will keep bubbling as long as we keep worshiping. So we come to worship together. We're not just coming here to sing some words on the songs, but we're coming here to drink from the living waters of Jesus Christ. Woman, you're thirsty and need some searching for something to satisfy you, to quench the thirst in your soul. It's not water. It's definitely not a man. It's Jesus, and it's the living water that you found when you worship him in spirit and in truth. We all thirst, but what are you trying to fill your thirst with? There's something in you calling out. Do you believe that you're thirsting for power, for, for money, for companionship, for possessions, for that husband, for the wife, for, for uh, freedom, whatever it is that you're thirsting for, we have to know. We can turn to the wrong things to ease our pain, but it won't last. We've got to turn to Jesus. We turn to alcohol to ease the pain. This is not a message telling you that alcohol is wrong. Jesus drank wine just before they arrested him. But the point is this. If we're turning to alcohol to ease the pain that Jesus was meant to ease, we're, we're trying to satisfy something that will never satisfy us. If we turn to drugs to try to, to, to soften the pain, to numb our pain, to disconnect, we're, 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 we're doing something that was never meant to be done. Jesus is the answer to the struggles and the suffering and the pain. Number four, and uh, I'll be closing in just a moment. Jesus not only knew what to drink, but he knew when to drink. My, when I said this to my staff earlier, I told them what I was going to be talking about today in our pre-service meeting. They all laughed. They like, Jesus knew when to drink. Because when we say, I'm about to drink, we all think about drinking what? She said water. How many, how many were like, that's not what I was thinking? <laughs> Jesus knew when to drink. We mentioned earlier that Jesus hadn't had a drink in 12 hours. He's dehydrated. His throat is parched. It's difficult to speak. 
after 12 hours with nothing and going through, he's struggling to even mutter words at this point because his mouth is so dry and his throat is so dry. But Jesus had two more powerful statements to say to the world. And I'll talk about one of them next week. But he had two more things to say. But he's so dry and he's so thirsty that now was the time for him to go ahead and get refreshed. It wasn't before this. He had to go through the pain. He had to go through the suffering. He didn't want to drink the wine mixed with myrrh because he didn't want to numb himself. But in this moment, he saw down there and he saw the sour wine. He saw the vinegar and he said, I need a refreshing right now so I can complete the process. Here's what he said. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. Now the mission was done. All I have to do is make these last two statements. So I need to get my body, my throat, my mouth, I need to get ready to say them. He couldn't get it done without something to drink. As powerful as this statement is, what stuck with me so much as I read this story was that this statement was a preparation for the very next thing he says. Out of the darkness. In verse 30, the very next verse, it says, When Jesus had tasted it, he screams. There's an exclamation point at the end of this one. It is finished. Jesus didn't have it before that. He couldn't scream anything. He could barely talk. So he had to refresh himself in order to declare a thing was done. A thing was finished. Here's where we are today. There are some missions that are coming to an end today. There is some suffering that needs to come to an end today. There are some struggles in our lives that we need to stand up and say, it is finished. It's done. It's over. That season, that chapter, that door, that struggle, that pain, that dehydration, that exhaustion, uh, the, all the things, that, the, the rejection, the bitterness, the, the, the punishment that I've gone through. It is done. It's over. It was done on the cross. And this chapter is over. Jesus had a mission. In the context of his mission, he had to go through some suffering. But he also recognized when the mission was over. And I want to speak into your spirit today and declare over you that there have been some missions that you were on. You may not even known that you were on them. You may not even have realized what you were going through and why. But today is a day that we declare like Jesus declared on the cross. It is finished. Can we close the chapter on some things? Can we say, that's enough of that, I'm moving on. I may have more things to come. I may have more battles to fight in my future, but I'm tired of this battle. I don't want to face this thing anymore. This thing has to come to an end today. This cross ends today. It is finished. Can we call some things done? Call some things completed? Can we say we passed the test and we are moving on? You can't finish, say it is finished without the living water of God stirring up on the inside of you. So here's what I want you to do today. And we're going to take about two minutes here to do this. We're going to worship for, for a moment. But when you came in, there was a note card beside you. And I'm going to pray for a second. And I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. Because there are some things I want to be finished, but may not be God's time to be finished. 
there are other things that God is saying, they're done. It's over. You're moving on. And I believe the Holy Spirit is going to speak those things to you right now. Whatever it is in your life that he wants to say, it's finished. It's behind you. You're moving on. Here's what I want you to do. When I pray, the Holy Spirit's going to drop it in your heart, write it on the card. And as we worship, we just come down, find a place in the altar, tear it up, and throw it on the altar. Why tear it up? Because it's done. There's no need for it anymore. So when you tear it, I believe something's going to break in your life, and you're going to move on to the next season, the next thing. I'm going to pray for you. And the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you, and then we're going to worship. Father, I thank you for your people today. I thank you for the word that's being spoken, that God, right now, you're speaking to our hearts and minds, and you are declaring that there are things in our lives you are speaking over us from the cross right now. We hear your words reverberating through the, through the course of history saying, it is finished. So Holy Spirit, as we breathe you in, refresh us, and tell us what those things are right now. Speak to us, God, as we begin to write right now. Let us know just a word or two words to know it is finished. Why are we writing to God? You know our hearts, but writing is a declaration of our faith. As we tear them up today, we are declaring it is finished. Just like your son Jesus said, the mission was over. The suffering was done. The worst part was over. It is finished. Speak, Holy Spirit. And as we leave this place, let us be refreshed. We came in thirsty, but Lord, we have come and we have found rivers of living water in your presence. I thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen.